Well, thanks, Stephen. It's, it's great to see a, a good crowd here. Uh, and so I'm sorry to begin with a semi-apology. It's a semi-apology because it is a proper apology, but it's about something semi-serious. So I called a semi-apology. Last time, the PowerPoint was fine over here and fine at the back, but for some reason it wasn't coming up on the screen. That problem has been solved tonight. But uh, although I have some images, I don't have the presentation I wanted to give you, not in its fullness, because uh, on the way here today, I had timed precisely the time to take me to create the actual PowerPoint presentation. I drove in from Bangor here, and on my way I realized I'd left the memory stick back in the house on which I wanted to put the images and text. So because I timed things precisely, I went back but time's against me, and if there are some images. It doesn't affect what I say at all, but it just means that, you know, Freud talks about the unconscious, and I had a couple of lovely little lines that are going to come up, float up from down there as though coming from the unconscious. So you have to take my word for it. No, why should you? I'd like to know. <laughs> well, that, that, by the way, is not Freud. Uh, it is simply that he didn't turn up last week on screen, so I put him up there. That is Nietzsche, and Nietzsche died in 1900. 1900 was the year of the publication, or strictly the publication date, because it came out in 1899. The publication of Freud's classic work on the interpretation of dreams. So Nietzsche died and Freud, earlier that year, in fact, the end of the previous year, had published that classic work, 1900. And you and I have got used to a whole Freudian vocabulary. These terms may not all have been invented by Freud, but they will become familiar to us uh, through Freud. So if I were to dare to say tonight you're here to unconsciously, because you want to explore your sexuality, because you have repressed a lot of stuff, because you have defense mechanisms, because you project things. If I talk in those terms, or one or two others, I'm picking up really a vocabulary that's come to us uh, in the case of Freud. And if you think I've started by sort of uh, psychoanalyzing you all, you can turn around and say, well, in that case, what are you doing here talking about Freud? But the fact is then that all these terms, including even unconscious actually, have come to us, although they weren't necessarily original Freud, through Freud himself. Now Freud's influence has been huge. Uh, as you will know, David uh, talked a couple of weeks ago about Darwin. Freud was a great admirer of Darwin. And Freud wanted to be, sorry I forgot to put Freud up, Freud wanted to be a biologist of the mind. Uh, he was uh, a medical practitioner, that's how he trained at any rate, but uh, he wanted to follow the footsteps of Darwin. Now, let's go back. 1856, the year of Freud's birth. He was born in what is now the Czech Republic. Uh, he moved at the age of about four to Vienna, and he actually was based in Vienna for the rest of his days uh, until... 1938, when Nazis annexed Austria, and uh, Freud, as a Jewish, because that's what he was, psychoanalyst, was not exactly going to be a favorite of the Nazis, 
So Freud and family were got out. People with high connections were able to get them out of Austria to London. And Freud died in 1939 in London, as a matter of fact. Uh, he suffered immensely in the last 16 years of his life, really immense suffering with cancer, very, very um, painful form of cancer, cancer of the throat here. The, the um, gap between his nasal cavity and his mouth disappeared completely. He had to have a prosthetic kind of plate here. Uh, he, he endured it very, very stoically. Uh, I won't actually be talking much about his life at all, just a very general biographical outline, but he was Viennese-based from the age of four. Jewish background. Different biographers will describe this in slightly different ways. It doesn't look like a strongly pious Jewish background. That's not to say there wasn't genuine Jewish faith in the household, but Freud doesn't seem to have been uh, nurtured in a vibrant Jewish faith, though his ethnic Jewishness was always important to him, and who knows what in the end he borrowed uh, positively from his Jewish religious tradition. But Freud was very soon, we don't quite know when, atheistic in his thinking, and it doesn't seem to have come from a point where he was very religious to an atheistic point. Uh, the atheism seems, from what we can tell, although he's a hard man to track in many ways for reasons which I'll state in a second, uh, from what we can tell, he doesn't seem to have had that kind of move from a religious, uh, positive, personal religious perspective to an atheistic one. He's a hard man to track because on at least one occasion, at least two occasions actually, he burned his papers and letters and when his family released correspondence, which he had written, it was at one stage very, very heavily and misleadingly edited. Freud, of course, thought that we function out of our sexuality, about which I'm going to have to talk, although I think there's a more interesting aspect to Freud's thought than that myself. What Freud's own sexual experiences were, we can't be sure of, it does seem he was involved in not-so-innocent play with a nephew of his who was actually a year older than himself when he was a child. There may have been some erotic violence exercised on the younger sister. He seems to have seen his mother naked, and his mother, when he was a child, his mother was as much younger than his father as she was older than he was. And all these things, I'm not interested at all in salacious gossip. It's simply that biographers will routinely refer to some of these things, not all, and to some other things too. There is a strong case for saying that a lot of Freud's thinking arises actually out of his own experiences and working things out. That may be true of all of us. Nietzsche, whom we looked, about, looked at last week, says that every person's thought is a biography of the soul of that person. And uh, Freud certainly seems no exception to that. The relation to the father is very, very telling. It is the fate of all of us, perhaps, said Freud, to direct our first sexual impulses towards our mother and our first hatred and our first murderous wish 
against our Father. He generalized. And many, of course, will share that experience, but not all. What was it that led him to father hatred, although it was ambivalent because there's also respect for the father? Well, it may have been more than one factor involved. There was poverty. And very often uh, a father, to think of the familiar nuclear model model here, can feel um, a failure for not having provided better for family. Child picks that up. There was the fact that he desired, it seems, or developed into thinking he desired his mother, but as the father who possesses a mother. There was also the fact that Freud's father reported to him when Freud was a boy that he had brought a fur hat many, many years before. This is before Freud is born. Freud's father was married to Freud's mother in the, it was his third marriage. At a previous time, a long time ago, Freud, the Jew, had been walking along the road with a new fur hat and a Christian had knocked it off into the mud and insulted him. And Sigmund said to his father, well, what did you do? Well, nothing, said the father. I just went on my way. And Sigmund contrasted this with Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general, who was told by his father, avenge me against the Romans and avenge my household. That is a real father. So... All these things bubble away inside Freud, and he knows it. And they are part of an interpretive framework he brings to thinking about humans. Okay, now Freud, I'm not going to pursue further the the inward and personal aspects of his life. Freud was a, a very able child in school and uh, apparently a domineering kind of character also in his home. He went to study at the University of Vienna after leaving school. He wanted to study medicine. He developed an interest in neurology and in neurosis and in clinical psychopathology. And here I, I really have to rely so much on secondary sources. I'm a theologian who takes an interest in Freud, but I think I should, but I'm not an expert in many aspects of this. Maybe many of you would be better off, better up than I am on some of these things, and do feel free to say so. Anyway, he became a lecturer in 1885 in neuropathology in Vienna. 1885 was a great turning point for him because he visited Paris and the great Jean-Martin Charcot, who was a leading psychiatrist in his day, interested in uh, neurosis, interested in hysteria. And by hysteria, of course, medical people mean something different from ordinary language. By hysterics, we normally mean excessive motion, but hysteria can be uh, a traumatic event. So if my arm is paralyzed for some reason, I'll explain in a second why I'm giving this example, if my arm is paralyzed for no apparent reason, no immediate apparent physiological cause of the usual kind, then it may be hysterical paralysis. Charcot uh, was 
treating hysteria by hypnosis. Under hypnosis was, uh, under the hypnosis of his patients, he was discovering what really was causing certain bodily conditions, as he thought. He remarked to Freud, Freud, you know, he said, sex is at the bottom of it all. And that stayed with Freud. Freud was already interested in neurosis before he went. In fact, he collaborated with someone when he went back, thoughtfully from uh, Paris, when he went back to Vienna, because he was just a few months in Paris. He rejoined Breuer, Josef Breuer, with whom he published later studies in hysteria, as a matter of fact. Breuer had found that a woman who had hysterical paralysis of the arm had, under hypnosis, had certain recollections. And when the recollections came to the surface, the paralysis disappeared. So buried recollections, Freud began to think, are behind people's uh, pathological conditions. Freud got married and himself had a family. I think it was the same number, actually, of children as he was, um, as there was a number in his own family. I think he was one of six, six children he had, something like that. Freud got married back in, uh, in Vienna, went into private practice in neuropathology, and out of that, they developed what became later called, it wasn't until the 1890s, and he'd seen Charcot in the 1880s and gone back to Vienna in the 80s. It became later called, in the 1890s, psychoanalysis. Freud was therefore the first psychoanalyst, set up a private practice. And, and he went beyond hypnosis. He was searching for the right way to get at what is going on underneath, on underneath with people in the unconscious because he's become convinced that the unconscious is the clue to the human person. He thought of defense, defenses we build, of repression, uh, notions which at one stage were more or less the same for him and then later he distinguished in a manner I'm not clear about actually between defense and repression. But he developed the uh, technique of free association because what people say in free association is actually far from random. It tells you a lot about what is really going on. And he felt that the unconscious determines what's going on there at the conscious levels, uh, albeit in a way that's hidden from us necessarily so. Freud uh, concluded to his dismay, that underneath the conditions he's treating, there was a lot of childhood abuse and seduction. He normally saw women, there's usually women, not always, and he began to see that underneath what they were suffering was this abuse and seduction by fathers, often. But the significance of that was not lost on him because if this was happening widely, what had his own father been up to? He had to ask this question. 
I'm aware, by the way, what a very painful subject this is. It may be for many people here tonight, so I don't speak dispassionately. But anyway, I'm just talking about Freud now. As he thought this through, he then began to think, but this must mean there's a lot of it going on in Vienna. And that can't be right. Surely, not as much as that is going on, not on the scale. So Freud revised his position over a number of years and con concluded that what we're looking at is not actual seduction, but desire, infantile sexuality. It's a sexual desire, and the people are fantasizing. Now, instead of saying, that, oh, well, that's all a fantasy, so let's go on from there, he said to himself, why should people fantasize in this way? And he ended up developing his notion of what is known as the Oedipus complex, for which he is as famous as he is with anything else. You remember the story of Oedipus? Sophocles famously dramatizes it in Oedipus Rex. Oedipus is fated to kill his father and marry his mother. He doesn't know he's doing it because there's been a separation, so he doesn't realize it's happening, but he does actually kill his father and marry his mother. Now, Freud thought, you know, underneath that, uh, that drama, there is some truth of the human condition. In fact, he said, you know, wherever you look, well, not wherever you look, but look at the great masterpieces of literature, Hamlet. Isn't Hamlet to be interpreted ultimately, not in terms of the text of the play, but in terms of what generated the play, play in Shakespeare's subconscious or unconscious? Isn't that, isn't that Oedipus complex at work? Think of, of the theme of the death of the father in that great novel by Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov. Here they are, great themes, great, great pieces of literature. Sophocles, Hamlet, Dostoevsky. It's coming up time and time again. It's not that the Oedipus complex appears on the surface of those at all, except, of course, uh, Oedipus Rex. It's rather, well, even the complex doesn't appear there. It's rather that he thought it's coming out of this kind of unconscious. I wonder if anyone recognizes that painting. Sorry, it's, uh, it lo looks clearer on my screen than yours here. I hope it's just about sharp enough for you to see. That's uh, Leonardo da Vinci, about whom Freud wrote, the virgin child with St. Anne. Now, if you look carefully at that picture, that blue, what is it? Well, you might say, well, it's part of some sort of dress. But uh, think of it again. Think of it as a bird starting on the left with the beak on the chin or mouth of the child. See it? See the beak? That, said Freud, is a vulture. Leonardo da Vinci talked about the way Freud thought, I'll qualify this in a second, talked about the way in which when he was a child he had a dream of a vulture 
came into a cradle and kind of entering his mouth, kind of. Freud looked at that and said, but the vulture is the mother goddess in Egypt. It's all there, all the symbolism is there. Something similar is going on in Da Vinci's experience as a child, his dreams, to what happened in the symbolism of ancient Egypt. Now, sorry to spoil the story for some of you, although it's a pretty ghoulish story, as a matter of fact, but actually the problem was that Freud, as so often, was not working from historically exact material. He's working from a German translation of a book on Leonardo da Vinci, which mistakenly translated uh, a word as the word vulture. The word actually in the original is not vulture. So Leonardo's uh, dream was not what Freud thought it was. But it's indicative of the way Freud thought. Wherever he saw artist, literary picture coming out of the unconscious, this sort of early, this is the mother goddess kind of attachment to the mother. Oedipus complex. Well, that is incredibly male, isn't it? Yes, it is. And feminists have long said that Freud said something about male sexuality and may have understood it up to a point, but really had little to say that was constructive and helpful about female sexuality. He wrote about female sexuality. Actually, I'm going to cut a complex and long story short here, which I'd be glad to elaborate on in questions if you want. Freud also talks about the girl's attachment to the father, that way around, and uh, distancing from the mother. He never used the phrase, I believe, uh, which is often used for that, which is the Electra complex, as opposed to the Oedipus. He did talk a bit about it, but his thought is built on Oedipus. It gets much more complicated than that in Freud, as a matter of fact. Freud basically believed um, that humans are bisexual in any case. But, but, but it's, not, it's not, as it were, um, a bisexual, bisexuality you can isolate by simply saying people are bisexual. It's rather they're bisexual by virtue of the fact that they relate to father or mother uh, normally, and therefore one is one sex, the other is the other sex. So they're bisexual by virtue of that relationship. Again, that's cutting a long story short, much of which I don't understand in its detail, as a matter of fact. Well, I need to move on quickly. Uh, you can imagine how all this scandalized the respectable Viennese. Freud is a dirty old man. He thinks it's all about sex. How dare he talk about Oedipal complexes and infantile, infantile sexuality? How corrupt can you get? Vienna... Vienna is too respectable for that. Vienna. Sorry, this is skew if you can see how quickly and late I put on, created this, uh, as many images as I could in time for the session. Uh, Vienna, that's Vienna in 1900. Cafes, uh, it all seems nice, quite bright cafes, people enjoying themselves, having coffee, why are they enjoying themselves having coffee? Because Vienna's fun knows because their own homes are so drab and dingy. Go to the back streets, and Vienna is very, very different indeed. A lot of corruption in Vienna. A lot of exploitation by respectable men of women. 
Again, that's a bit faded, isn't it? Um, the waltz. You can hear the Blue Danube and David, should, I should have asked David this day, to simply get up and play for us Blue Danube. The waltz. What can be more genteel? What can be more good than the waltz? I mean, isn't that happy and respectable? Uh, listen to what someone visiting Vienna said at this time. Strauss and his waltzes. Da, 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 da. Provide an escape into the demonic. African and hot-blooded, crazy with life, restless, unbeautiful, passionate, he exorcises the wicked devils from our bodies and he does it with waltzes, which are the modern exorcism, capturing our senses in a sweet trance. Typically African is the way he conducts his dances. His own limbs no longer belong to him. When the thunderstorms of his waltz is let loose, his fiddle bow dances with his arms, the tempo animates his feet, the melody waves champagne glasses in his face, and the devil is abroad. A dangerous power has been given into the hands of this dark man. And so on it goes. I might say, come on, a waltz is pretty innocent. Well, yes, but we're in the third millennium, and uh, the dances we're used to certainly does make the waltz look innocent. What exactly was going on at the time in the waltz? Well, I don't know. But a visitor to Vienna felt there's some connection here with something which is unruly and disturbing. Anyway, the Viennese did not like old uh, uh, Freud's speculations. I was told this book I've not read, but Erwin Ringel was an Austrian psychiatrist. He died uh, 20 years ago. In 1984, this was told to me. I've not read the book. It's it's not translated uh, from German as far as I know. In 1984, he wrote a book called The Austrian Soul in which he argued that all Austrians have two souls. The outer soul is warm, and happy and generous and friendly and greets you inside. They will let very few people in there, very few people, where it's dark and dismal and drab and suicidal. Of course, people didn't like Ringel's work. My friend assures me, and he's well up in these things, it's because he was telling the truth about the Austrian soul. Okay. So here's Freud speculating about what's going on uh, deep within us. Now, as his thought moved from um, seduction theory to belief about infantile sexuality and the Oedipus complex, as his thought was making that move over a number of years, as a matter of fact, he had brought out this book on the interpretation of dreams, which he highly regarded himself and has been highly regarded by many people. At the time when it came out, it didn't get much of a sale, Successive editions uh, were produced and there's more and more sale of it. The interpretation of dreams is the royal road to knowledge of the unconscious activities of the mind, said Freud. Now, as a matter of fact, when Freud wrote this, he argued that dreams were basically wish fulfillments. It might seem a bit surprising, but he did argue that, and he argued that, of course, the wishes aren't expressed directly in dreams, there are a lot of anxieties in dreams, but anxieties would be understood as the frustration of wishes, and the wishes are coming out around the corner somehow in dreams. He argued this in detail, but Freud came to think 
And here, in my judgment, without playing down the importance of sexuality, on the contrary, I think human sexuality and what makes us tick is absolutely vital. But here I think we're onto something more profoundly interesting than Freud. Freud began to think that dreams couldn't simply be wish fulfillment. He began to think there must be another principle at work. The wish fulfillment theory of dreams depends on the thinking about sexuality. I mean, basically, sexuality is basically a pleasure principle, or is meant to be. So that if the pleasure principle is what drives us, then it's, it's a wish of some kind uh, that's sublimated and comes out in some way in dreams amidst all kinds of anxieties and fears. But that doesn't seem to work for many dreams. And you might say, well, that's true anyway, but it was particularly true for Freud after, during the First World War, with traumatic neuroses on the part of soldiers and repetitive dreams of what they'd seen. Freud began to think there must be another principle working away in the human uh, unconscious, which can't be, which can't be the um, sexuality and wish. It must be something else. As a result... He produced a book in 1920 called Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Now, those years, 1890s, he'd been making his reputation. The 1900s, he's making his reputation of being to draw to him um, other people who were beginning to follow him. Freud was very disappointed when in the early 1910s, the people he wanted to be following him began to break ranks. The great names of Adler and Jung are the ones which are often mentioned. He, he really thought they were treacherous and broken with him because they thought that Freud got sexuality wrong, that he's overplaying sexuality. And I think there's a way in which Freud is actually beginning to admit that um, later. Anyway... Um, in uh, 1920, he brought out Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And he said, well, there's something in us which seeks for pleasure that's in the unconscious. But there's something in us, of course, which present, prevents us from simply fulfilling our pleasures. Because obviously we can't simply fulfill our pleasures. We can't simply do that because, well, it might be my pleasure now to do any number of things. But realistically, it's going to cause trouble in my life and your life and everyone's life. So... There's a reality principle at work as well. Okay, pleasure principle, reality principle. That doesn't sound too complex, but there's something else going on too, as far as Freud is concerned. It's not simply that there is a pleasure principle, but there is a death instinct. Actually, that's the way it's translated. The German word for instinct is instinct with a K. Um, the German word is not that, it's drive, trieb. It's a death drive. And that coexists with the sexual drive. You and I are governed by the drive towards sex and the drive towards death. And there's a conflict. How did Freud conclude that? Well, his argument seems to be this. What Freud seems to be saying is that if you follow Darwin, about whom we heard a couple of weeks ago, 
If you follow Darwin, you believe that it's the essence of an organism to conserve, to preserve itself. Self-preservation, that's life. But on the evolutionary scheme of things, all life comes out of what was not life, what was inanimate. Or we could say dead. Well now, if life comes out of what was not life, how does that which was dead, as it were, conserve itself? It must be that living organisms also have in them something which blocks that life because they emerge from not life. From dust they have come. That's my dramatic, meant to be dramatic, interjection. Foy doesn't use those words, but he knew his Bible. From dust they have come. So that there is a death instinct at work in us and a life instinct. There they are. How about that for a happy spectacle? I'm here tonight to cheer you up and make you all merry. I hope I have. Eros and Thanatos. Now, Freud talks about eros, love in, in a broader sense than sexuality, the sort of whole drive of a person's being. I mean, he concentrates on sex, but eros is wider. And thanatos, a word he doesn't use in this context, actually, but it's, it was um, used by another Freudian. It's familiar in the literature, love and death. Two Greek words, of course. Uh, they are twins in the human soul. Beyond Pleasure Principle in 1920 also makes another important move. It moves away from the view of mind as best understood in terms of conscious and unconscious. Freud doesn't give that up, but he thinks it's not complicated enough. This is the way he used to look at mind, and this is a a very um, interesting outline of it. He was still thinking this just before Beyond the Pleasure Principle was published, or at least about three years before. Let us therefore compare the system of the unconscious to a large entrance hall in which the mental impulses jostle one another like separate individuals. Adjoining this entrance hall, there is a second narrower room, a kind of drawing room, in which consciousness, too, resides. But on the threshold between these two rooms, a watchman performs his function. He examines the different mental impulses, acts as a censor, and will not admit them into the drawing room if they displease him. The impulses in the entrance hall of the unconscious are out of sight of the conscious, which is in the other room. To begin with, they must remain unconscious. If they have already pushed their way forward to the threshold, and have been turned back by the watchman, then their inadmissible consciousness, we speak of them as repressed. But even the impulses which the watchman has allowed to cross the threshold, <coughs> excuse me, even the impulses which the watchman has, not allow, has allowed to cross the threshold are not on that account necessarily conscious as well. They can only become so if they succeed in catching the eye of consciousness. 
We are therefore justified in calling the second room the system of the pre-conscious. So you have the unconscious, the conscious, and the pre-conscious. The pre-conscious is that which I can recall or bring to light if I need to, although right now it's not in the consciousness. But there is stuff in the unconsciousness which never comes directly to the consciousness. Now Freud thought that as a matter of fact, that doesn't do justice as well as it might to the way the human mind is actually structured. And so he develops a thinking on the ego, the id, the superego, which is there in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, 1920, interesting work, but more fully elaborated and even more interesting work called the ego and the id. It's, it's, so we get into translation problems, by the way, because the German is the, the I, the ich, the I, that is capital I, which, I'm, which is commonly translated ego. But it, it, it is I, you know, the way I refer to myself would be the I, I am doing, I am coming. Uh, the I is the ego. This is the pleasant picture he comes up with. I'm now looking at you all in this light, by the way. And you now look even more beautiful than you did when you came in earlier. Poor ego. Let me give you an illustration. Here I am. I am trying to lecture or give a talk, whatever you call it. I am trying to control. I'm watching the time which is running away from me, and I want to move quickly. I'm conscious of all that as I speak. So I'm trying to contend with the external world around me here. Inside, there is the id. Unconscious stuff. I don't know what's going on there. And neither do you. Same is true of all of you, by the way. This is not a confession. Still less a Freudian confession, okay? But there's another character, too. So I'm contending with, with the external world, my time here. I'm contending with the id. Though I don't realize that, I'm repressing or defending or guarding whatever I'm doing. But also, there's a superego, there's a voice saying to me, Stephen Williams, you're doing a bad job tonight. Stephen Williams, you failed to get the PowerPoint presentations you should. Stephen Williams, you don't carry a candle to David Livingston as a scholar or speaker or anything else. Stephen Williams, you know why? It's because you're guilty. Stephen Williams, where's your conscience? Stephen Williams, what have you been doing with yourself for the last 30 years? That's going on. It's my superego. <laughs> Steve, you invite right good people to give these talks, don't you? I assure you that has been made up as it went along, right? Maybe not. Maybe from the unconscious, all that's coming through. But, I mean, that's the superego. Seriously, that's the superego. There is a voice. It's the kind of ego ideal. It's also what I'd like to be because... I'd like to measure up to this, that, and the other. So poor ego. The ego is partly buried in the unconscious. I've got my feet in the mud of the unconscious id. And I'm trying to control life and the external world. And this voice keeps saying to me, you shall, you shall not, you have, you have not. What did that sound to you like? You shall not, you shall not. That sounds like the voice of God. And that's the superego. God is the supreme and ultimate dreadful 
father figure from deep in my childhood unconscious and the childhood of the human race, not just me personally. Hence, I move on finally before giving an appraisal to Freud on religion. That's the totem. Now, semi-jocularly, but semi-seriously, last week, um, I said that David Livingston could answer certain questions, but a fuller account of this would involve a figure called Robertson Smith, who was of great interest to David, and David's far more knowledgeable than I am about Robertson Smith. Let me cut to the chase here. Freud wanted to argue that religion is rooted in the Oedipus complex. And he looked at totemism. They're fed into his thought here certain things that Darwin had said, and this most interesting character, a Free Church Scotland minister who got into hot water in the 19th century, William Robertson Smith. Their contributions I won't go into uh, to save time, but Freud believed that totemism was at the root of religions. Now, what accounts for totemism? Well, although his book Totem and Taboo is a short one and quite easily readable, he actually does have a very quick account of this in his autobiography. So Freud wrote an autobiography in 1925, I think it was. So let me just read you quickly what Freud said here about the account of totemism. People used to live in hordes. The father of the primal horde was an unlimited despot, had seized all the women for himself. His sons, being dangerous to him as rivals, had been killed or driven away. One day, however, the sons came together and united to overwhelm, kill, and devour their father, who had been their enemy, but also their ideal. After the deed, they were unable to take over their heritage since they stood in one another's way. Under the influence of failure and remorse, they learned to come to an agreement among themselves. They banded themselves into a clan of brothers by the help of the ordinances of totem, totemism, which aimed at preventing the repetition of such a deed. And they jointly undertook to forego the possession of the women on whose account they had killed their father. They were then driven to finding strange women, and this was the origin of marriage outside the clan, which is so closely bound up with totemism. The totem meal was the festival commemorating the fearful deed which sprang from the sense of guilt. So the sons are jealous that the father has all the women. They band together and kill, and they feel guilty and set... uh, set up a um, system whereby they cannot now marry the mothers and the fathers uh, is venerated and feared, represented as an animal in totemism and a meal, ritual meal commemorates the occasion where somehow the strength and power of the father flows back into the son's Now, you might think that is strange enough, and so it is. Actually, the basis for it is not very strong, but it becomes even stranger when Freud concluded that this has something to do with the Lord's Supper. 
Robertson Smith, though not without this whole scheme of thought, put him on the track of this, when Robertson Smith thought there was some connection between totemism and the sacrificial system of ancient Israel. The father being appeased. The death of the Son of God. Holy Communion. It all hangs together somehow. It all somehow is, is a mutation after totemism. And totemism is explained by the fundamental Oedipus complex underlying it all. Well, Freud wrote a further work on religion called The Future of an Illusion. He himself actually came to think that there was not much to be said for that particular work. He thought it weak, and it was very weak. As a matter of fact, Freud argued that religion was an illusion. An illusion is not necessarily something untrue. An illusion is something you believe because you wish to believe it. You believe something because you wish to believe it. Now, those mean necessarily it's untrue. Freud's own example is that someone might believe uh, she is destined to marry some super-rich or, or, or super-romantic prince. Well, it might happen. It does happen occasionally. So illusion might not actually be untrue, but it's a product of wishful thinking. He thought religion was like that, that religion is not rooted in reason. Religion keeps on talking about being above reason. It's not rooted in anything reasonable. It's rooted in some sort of illusion. It takes uh, fantasy for reality. Fantasizes about God. There is no God. He finally wrote a book on civilization and its discontents because he was pessimistic about human nature. Civilization is a grim business. He talked about the instinct for aggression. What civilization does is civilization actually is meant to repress your instincts or control your instincts because you can't let all your instincts, sexual, aggressive, you can't let them all out, obviously not. So civilization fights against your instincts, which means we're going to be unhappy people. Christianity tries to get around that by talking about love. But, this is Freud, and let me practically, in conclusion, before a word of appraisal, let me quote him in this. Love. Love your neighbor. Why should we? What good will it do us? How shall we achieve it? My love is something valuable to me which I ought not to throw away without reflection. My neighbor can't possibly have any claim on my love. In fact, a stranger is not only unworthy of my love, said Freud. The way a stranger usually behaves, the stranger has more claim to my hostility and even my hatred than to my love. Civilization, then, is something for which we can't have much hope because how will those instincts ever be happily kept in check. But at least it is better to live your life by religion than it is, sorry, by reason than it is by religion. Well, I want to conclude with just five minutes of appraisal. In fact, when Stephen said earlier we were talking about Christianity and modern thought, I realized that last week, as this one, because of time, I've given very little time to, uh, to Christianity. But nevertheless, I, I hope that what I will say in summary will be helpful and 
would want to um, discuss it with you in question time. <coughs> Excuse me, please. I want to say five things very quickly. Firstly, on the origin of religion itself, on totemism, um, we're dealing with something for which there's no, there's no evidence. There was no evidence at the time, and there's no evidence now. It's not that there's any harm in natural explanations. It's perfectly consistent for a Christian to say, in fact, I think a Christian should say that if we can find natural explanations for things scientifically, as well as talking about the hand of God. When Jesus said, um, observe the birds, your heavenly Father feeds them, no one said to him, well, I've looked at the birds and I've never seen God feeding any of them. How, do, how does God feed the birds? Answer, well, you can describe it. They feed themselves. You can describe by observation. And science is simply an extension of that. So you can have scientific accounts of things. You can have accounts of how religions developed in human terms. As a, obviously, religion is in its way perfectly human. Of course it is. The question is whether there's also God and there's God who's behind it. So a natural explanation, even not Freud's about totemism, a natural explanation of things developing history, that's absolutely fine. It does not eliminate supernatural for one moment, more than do natural scientific exclamations. Secondly, he's quite wrong on human reason in terms of Christianity. In Future Illusion, uh, Freud says, well, Christianity, you know, um, it, it, there is no time for reason, simply belief, faith, and it's above reason. But as a matter of fact, reason itself is far more limited than Freud believes. Reason itself is much more culturally conditioned and open to the charge that uh, when people use this, open to the charge that there are certain postulates of faith that underlie apparently rational claims. But the point I want to make is that in the New Testament, no one is ever asked to believe anything that is unreasonable. A basis is given. Now, we have to ask, well, why should we believe the Bible? Absolutely. Fair question, good question, right question, essential question. But it's a question which the Bible itself would invite you to ask because it itself tries to give reason for its own testimony. When Freud talks about religion being above reason, there is a sense in which religion is above reason, but not the sense in which it gives. It's not anti-reason at all. Freud gives not the slightest philosophical backing for this claim. Thirdly, human sexuality. Yes, indeed. There is to human sexuality a mystery and a brokenness. It emerges in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, take it literally, take, take it pictorially, take it as a mixture, take it how you want. Adam and Eve uh, are naked but not ashamed. Then there is sin, and they cover up their nakedness. Into sexual innocence, some, there's some intrusion of some kind. There is some disturbance. And isn't that the case with us? We are fragile. We are bewildered. We are all kinds of things. Sexuality is supposed to be okay, is it not? No, it's not. No, there is something disordered there. All of us. The Bible says that from the beginning. 
So to find an explanation of humans in terms of sexuality of itself is not amiss. We can learn from Freud in principle there, though the particular speculation by the Oedipal complex is a very different thing. Fourthly, the death instinct, which, as I say, I personally find the most interesting part of his work. It's the most interesting part of his work because, to me because it echoes something again in the early chapters of Genesis. Humans are created for love, for eros, the erotic in the wider sense, not narrowly sexual or sensual, but the eros, love, as in the love of God as well. We're created for that. Humans created for loving each other, but in the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall die. A death instinct will be at work alongside a love instinct. Love and death are contradictions. In love, you never want the loved one to die, do you? Love longs for immortality. Death cuts short love. Though Christians believe in immortality, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So to talk about a love and death instinct working away in us, I think, is something profoundly true in its own way. Finally, do you believe in the Bible here? In Fitzroy, am I allowed to read a bit of the Bible or not? Some would think we don't, but we do. You do? I mean, this is, I'm not going to be quoting Bruce Springsteen or anything now. You know, this, this is the Bible, okay? So Steve mentioned Bruce Springsteen to me before this talk, in case you wondered what that reference is about. But Steve himself mentioned it. Freud on the ego, the id, and the superego. I'll simply leave you with this. This is Paul talking. I do not understand my own actions. For I... Do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do it, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, we'll leave that bit out for a moment, is good. So then, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I, the ego, that do it, but sin, which dwells within me. There's an echo there, isn't there? What Freud sadly never knew was Paul's, in his experience, what Paul said afterwards, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who delivers from the body of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. Well, thank you. You've been patient. It's taken longer than I should have. Um, I'm not looking very apologetic, am I? But I have... So now time for any questions, comments, not just questions, challenges also, and particularly from people who know more than I do about aspects of Freud.